Hello, everyone, and welcome to Context. This program is brought to you by the Idaho Humanities Council with funding from the National Endowment for the Humanities. The views expressed here today do not necessarily represent those of the IHC or the NEH. My name is Joanna Bringhurst, and joining us today is Rachel Stewart. Rachel is a PhD student at The Ohio State University studying Victorian popular fiction and culture with expertise in the Gothic and monstrosity. She is interested in how popular fiction depicts the embodied supernatural in creatures such as the vampire and the culture surrounding the production and consumption of these texts. I'm so excited to have Rachel. Thank you for being here today to talk with us about vampire literature. Thank you so much for having me. This is truly so exciting. Everybody I get to tell, they're like, wow, you get to just ramble on about vampires on a podcast? That sounds like your dream. And it is. <laughs> I'm so glad to hear it. We're going to have fun today. I know it. So will you start us off by explaining the origins of the vampire? Where did this idea originate? Right. So, you know, I am a literature scholar, so that's kind of where the most of my knowledge comes from. But the actual origin of the vampire proper is a folkloric creature that comes mostly from, again, as far as we know, who knows if there's records that have been lost and things of that nature. But as far as we know, and as far as we have records for, it seems to be a creature that comes out of Slavic folklore, Eastern Slavic folklore, mostly. Um, and actually, during, during that time and during the records that we have, um, interestingly, the vampire was synonymous with the ghost. They were referred to as the same creature, or the, the vampire was almost this specified certain type of ghost in the way that they were both things that have come back from the dead wrong, and then the vampire kind of morphed into this specific type of wrong. Um, and so that had been around for much longer before the actual literature kind of took it up. Um, and then we have many, we have literature such as uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge's Christabel, which is a narrative poem that is not explicitly vampiric, but is often considered as a part of the vampire canon in terms of things that were proto-vampiric. But uh, the first vampire actually proper that we have, that at least, you know, scholars like to figure as like, okay, this is the point that we're at least going to agree on to start with, um, is technically aptly named the vampire uh, by John Polidori in 1819. And this is the first kind of classic image of the vampire that we picture, kind of like the suave, handsome, going around to parties, rich, looking for the young girl to feed off of. It's shocking how much the traditions of the vampire started with this text and stayed the same. Like people will read it and think, oh, this is very similar to what I know. It has not actually changed all that much. And there's a little bit of drama around this poem, right? Because um, you might know, our audience might know that Dr. John Pulitzer Dory, is that how you say Polidori, yes. was uh, an assistant to Lord Byron, I believe. Yes, he was Lord Byron's personal physician's assistant. And there's, as always with the romantics, there's a lot of drama, but specifically the drama with this is, well, it's kind of twofold, where the vampire itself, um, Lord, which his, I pronounce it Lord Rhythm, but it's it, it's spelled in a way that you'll find like a million different pronunciations of it. But the vampire okay. within the vampire, 
um, is supposedly based off of Lord Byron himself um, in the worst of ways, not a complimentary portrait of Lord Byron, um, but, you know, the monstrous portrait of Lord Byron. But however, even more from that, when it was first published, when The Vampire was actually first published, it was attributed to, to Lord Byron. So when it first came out, it was published by Lord Byron, even though it was actually by John Polidori. And so there was this whole battle of who actually wrote it, you know, was it actually then anonymized and that it was Polidori and then the scandal around all that. And then Byron claimed that it was plagiarized from him because he actually has a piece of vampire literature as well, but it's just a fragment. It was never finished and it's called just the fragment. We're dealing with very creative titles here. Um, but his was just called The Fragment. So there was a lots of interpersonal drama and publishing drama as to who actually was responsible for this first piece. And this piece was published in 1819. Yes. And then we continued to see more literature evolving through the 19th century featuring vampires. Yes, yeah. So then this kind of jump starts off what we consider the vampire craze in the 19th century, which is my focus in terms of historical expertise. Um, and I think in at least vampire history, there's kind of this jump that we go from of, okay, yeah, we we agree that Polidori started this in, you know, 1819, kind of the 1820s era is where it starts off. And then a lot of traditional vampire history that's not so specified. Um, maybe we'll stop on Carmilla if we're lucky, but even then, you know, that's 1870. And then sometimes they just immediately jump to Bram Stoker's Dracula in 1897. However, there's such a wealth of vampire literature that was popular in between that. Um, and at least my opinion on why it gets skipped over is because most of it was explicitly made for a popular audience. And a lot of it was coming out of um, Penny Dreadfuls, which were very much, you know, I like to explain to either my students or people who don't really know like what exactly a Penny Dreadful is as, you know, that's kind of the Victorian's Marvel films. It's their very popular mass appeal. There's the universe, there's the timelines that sometimes make sense and sometimes don't. People are dying, coming back to life. It's the Victorian's MCU. And because of that, historians um, would look back on it and kind of deem it as not important to put in this literary canon, especially when the vampire is kind of has to be crawling up through the ranks to even be seen as important. It's like, okay, well, Polidori was a famous, you know, famous guy, so we'll include his. And Bram Stoker was famous enough, we'll include his too. But this weird, not very well-written Barney the Vampire, Penny Dreadful, I don't know about that. Even though it was so popular and arguably even more popular than a lot of these other texts that we know, but a lot of these texts get kind of flushed out the wayside, not really paid attention to because they either were popular or because they were written, written by women, which there's actually a lot of vampire literature pre-Dracula that is written by women and is explicitly being used to address um, situations such as domestic violence or Victorian laws towards women and using kind of the figure as the monster, the figure of the monster and the vampire to navigate through those issues. But unsurprisingly, weren't reviewed very well by critics, getting the old song and dance of, oh, why, why are you writing about this, you know, woman, this is not your place to be writing about this, and then kind of got forgotten throughout history. So a lot of my work, um, you know, I love Dracula, I truly love Dracula, and I love Carmilla, because, you know, lesbian vampires, how, how can you not love them? But a lot of my work, um, I'm very invested in the recovery of these undersung vampiric texts throughout, uh, throughout this time period 
before Dracula. That's so cool to hear that the vampire was a vehicle for feminists to really have a say on what a woman's life was like and the issues that she was dealing with. Unsurprisingly, maybe it was um, forgotten for some time. Mm-hmm. it's so wonderful to have scholars like you Rachel who are bringing that back to our attention and helping us um, to reconnect with those forgotten corners of literary history so yeah, will no, you is... talk some more oh sorry oh ahead. no I was just gonna say it's really that's my biggest passion is that is that recovery I always I feel like I have to I have to always have the disclaimer of I do love Dracula you know I've read it like five times I love it so much but I do want to do other things of course yeah thank you for talking about that Will you tell us more about Carmilla too? Because I'm not sure all of our listeners will know this as well. It was written by Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu in 1871. And why does this piece make a difference? Right. So this is Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu is an Irish author who wrote a bunch of supernatural things. Uh, He's very entertaining. If you're one of those people who knows Carmilla, but maybe hasn't went beyond Carmilla, I'd highly recommend uh, reading his Green Tea short story, which kind of goes off into a bunch of his other short stories, which are really great. Um, But Carmilla is really interesting in that it has a lot of very explicit references to some of this proto-vampiric texts that we kind of were discussing earlier, very explicitly Christabel, um, which is, again, this poem, a romantic poem that is not explicitly vampiric, but when compared with Carmilla, Joseph Sheridan Lafanu seems very connected with this figure of the female vampire and taking a lot of the idea of just kind of the female supernatural and almost the female predatory supernatural and putting this into Carmilla, which is both just an interesting text in and of itself because it is, um, as far as we know, the first explicitly queer lesbian vampire story. Um, but in terms of the actual just content of the text, what I find interesting about it and what's kind of put it up for some scholarly debate is, you know, I guess, spoiler spoiler alert to how it ends, um, Carmilla, the a female lesbian vampire, does not survive at the end. She does get killed. And while this is very common for most vampire media at the time. Most 19th century vampires do not survive at the end of their tale. That just unfortunately is most of their fate. So that's common. However, what's uncommon is that scholars are kind of divided on whether this tale is portraying Carmilla as a predator, pretty unsympathetically trying to be um, anti-feminist in this way of showing Carmilla as this predatory lesbian um, against Laura, the protagonist, who's this young, naive, innocent girl, and whether her staking and her being killed at the end is supposed to be this celebration of the patriarchy. We've won, we have went back to normality, which a lot of the times um, is a common argument that 19th century supernatural fiction is always looking towards vanquishing the supernatural at the end. However, you then have this other side of the argument, which to put my cards on the table is where I fall because also uh, a lot of my research and interest uh, lies into sympathetic monsters. I'm really interested in how we are supposed to feel about these monsters. And I think a lot of 19th century monsters are more sympathetic than we think because we just assume, oh, Victorian, they're they're prudes. Of course they hate the monsters, but I think there's actually a lot of sympathy there that we can find. And particularly in Carmilla, um, I think with a close reading and closely looking at the actual relationship and interactions between Laura, the human, young female and Carmilla the vampire I think you can find a lot of 
passion there and a lot of compassion between the two. And I think uh, it's narrated through Laura's point of view, um, or it's narrated through some letters of Laura. And she's very clearly in love with Carmilla. And it seems that Carmilla is as in love with her. Like, it seems like a very mutually in love situation. And through the background that we get on Carmilla and through some of uh, just her origin story, which I won't, you know, I won't just completely give away the plot, but she's not had it too easy before her vampire life. And a lot of that seems to be dealing with some forced heteronormativity. So I think that there is definitely a reading to be made there that we're supposed to sympathize with Carmilla. And while some of the characters might be happy that she's dead at the end, Laura isn't. And I think we as the reader are supposed to sympathize with Laura and understand that she has lost this great love and that there's more complexity to Carmilla than just evil vampire and so that that's how I've always read it and that's why I find it to be really interesting and important on that other level because I think it's a text that historically gets read as anti-feminist which I also think Dracula gets historically read as anti-feminist for some similar reasons um but also I think there's a lot of feminist reading to be done in Dracula I'm I'm really interested in the transgressive vampires however However you can shake that, I'm always kind of interested in looking that in the other side of it. Um, but I, I'm really, I really like teaching Carmilla specifically in 2023 because I think students, not even scholars, but you know, our students get that more and they seem to pick up on that sympathy even easier than some scholars do. Like they seem to read it and see like, oh yeah, obviously, you know, they're so excited about shipping Laura and Carmilla together and saying that they're such a cute couple and that they're so sad at the end. And it seems like they get that affect response more than some scholars do, which I find really interesting and why I kind of think it's a really cool time to be reteaching Carmilla. It seems like that's part of the joy and the fun too in reading vampire literature is there's so many layers of meaning across all of these centuries of literature. And with each new generation taking a fresh look, there's so much more that we can understand. I've always read about monsters from the point of view of this could be me mm. is there a monster mm -hmm. in me is there a darkness in me and I love reading books like this with my kids and seeing how they approach things so differently and have a greater understanding of the complexity of heroes and villains I think than I was right taught yes. when I was a student um, and you spoke, you kind of naturally progressed to Dracula by Bram Stoker, which came out 25 years after Carmilla. And I think this is the piece that most of our listeners are familiar with and know the best. Why was Drac why did Dracula make such a huge splash? Right. So interestingly, um, I'll take us just one step back from Dracula in and of itself, but we'll stay in the same year. Um, one of the texts that I've done the most intimate research with, and this author I've done a lot of archival work on, um, is actually a book published in the same year, um, 1897, but the records are kind of sparse, but we do believe it was a couple months before Dracula. Um, we have a book called The Blood of the Vampire by Florence Marriott. So again, this is the same year as Dracula, which goes on to be like you said, the vampire text, where no matter what, no matter who I'm talking to, if I mention that I do vampires, they immediately go, okay, so what are your thoughts on Dracula? 
But we also have this text, um, Blood of the Vampire by Florence Marriott, that again is written by a woman. And I won't go on my whole ramble about her, which I could, but she is one of those Victorian authors that just did a million and one different things. Um, you know, she was also a very prolific opera singer, a dog breeder, like all this stuff. And she wrote this book and it, even though it says, even in the title, it has the word vampire in it and even blood, which is what you would consider. Um, I've done a lot of work on this text because it is a, um, a psychic vampire book, meaning that the vampire within the text, Harriet Brandt, um, she does not suck blood. She sucks life energy out of out of her victims. And um, this is also not an uncommon thing in the 19th century. Uh, when I spoke earlier of there being a multitude of vampiric texts within the 19th century, many of them were psychic vampires. It was not uncommon to find that. Arthur Conan Doyle wrote a vampire, a psychic vampire story called The Parasite. Um, we have a lot of sensation novel authors, again, mostly women, writing short stories about psychic vampires. This wasn't it wasn't like she invented the psychic vampire by any means. The psychic vampire was um, actually invented in the 1850s in this American text. But regardless, she publishes this the same year as Dracula, and it does just as well in terms of popularity. So we know that Dracula was very popular at the time it was written and published, and we know it's very popular now. Blood of the Vampire was just as, if not more popular, because Florence Marriott was an again, you know, I'm always, I'm that historian that has to like couch everything in like what we know in the archives, but from what do I've it, seen, do it. right? Like I just, I, from what I've seen in the archives and I did take a trip um, to the Yale Beinecke Library a couple years ago to look at their Florence Marriott archive collection. And a lot of this hasn't been digitized, unfortunately, because she's kind of just now re-rising in prominence to being studied. Um, but according to some letters from her publisher, she was allegedly the number one most popular author period in America and was also hugely popular in Britain. She was British, but she was just, I mean, massively, massively successful. She, bless you. <laughs> and she published many, many novels. She was one of those sensation novel authors. Um, and again, if you're, if anyone's not familiar with the sensation novel, just popular novels of, of the 19th, 19th century, usually the 1860s was kind of their heyday, but she wrote a ton. And one of her novels was this psychic vampire novel. And she was very popular at the time that it already had come out. She already had a fan base. Um, luckily we have in the archives a ton of her fan letters um like she got fan letters begging for her signature and then we did we do know that she responded and then they'd send another letter saying that they're going to treasure that letter forever very cute um but she wrote this female psychic vampire and it was hugely popular with her fans however the critics absolutely hated it um they for a number of reasons some of them hated it merely because it was a popular novel and so they were saying it just wasn't well written wasn't well done um again going back to some of these criticisms of women writing about these issues the book deals very explicitly with marital violence and domestic abuse um and especially racial abuse and enslavement because the um protagonist of the story Harriet Brandt is biracial from Jamaica um so there was criticisms about that, saying that a woman shouldn't be writing about that. Florence Marriott herself had a couple marriage scandals. So some of the criticisms involved saying, why should a woman who's had these marriage scandals be writing about oh, another woman in a marriage scandal? And so then because of that, because of her being a popular novelist, because of her being a woman writer, it really fell out of obscurity. 
And so today when we have people talking about Dracula and saying it's, you know, the vampire novel of 1897, which it totally was. And, you know, it was also incredibly popular. I don't want to undermine that. It was incredibly popular. People did love it and people did love it for a variety of reasons. And it kind of rose above that status as a popular novel. But there's also during that exact same year, a female vampire who is just as if not more transgressive than some of the especially the sexuality that we see in Dracula that's really just been completely forgotten and been just washed away in both scholarship and our kind of public consciousness and there's a lot of really interesting crossovers where it seems we don't have exact evidence that Marriott read Dracula or knew Bram Stoker, but from the textual connections we can make, it seems very clear that they're in conversation with each other in terms of knowing the wider vampire tradition that they're, you know, communicating within. And it seems like Florence Marriott's novel is very much aware that it's entering into this wider tradition in the same ways that Dracula is. So it just, I, I always have to plug that whenever talking about kind of the history of it, because I think most people aren't aware that there was another vampire novel that was just as popular popular that same year, but dealt with a whole completely different type of vampirism. So in The Blood of the Vampire, we're looking at a psychic vampire who is taking the life force rather than the blood from her victims. And in Dracula, it's the more traditional blood-sucking vampire. And it does, as you said, we don't want to diminish Bram Stoker's work because it's also brilliant, but it it, it does rub the wrong way to hear about um, a woman's contributions to literature being minimized. And luckily now we're looking back in time and those books don't have to compete for us as they might have in the market of the day mm -hmm. where they had the same topic and came out the same year. So thank you so much for helping us learn more about Florence Marriott and her contributions. Yeah, of course. And I, and I will also say that it's, you know, if anyone's interested in reading it, it's much shorter than Dracula. It is, it's again, it's a very quick sensation novel. It's very short and it's very easy to get through. And it's very compelling, at least in my opinion. And I think it, uh, I actually have an upcoming journal article that, that should be published next spring about the sympathy used in that novel, because um, at least I argue the vampire Harriet is deeply, deeply sympathetic. And I think that Florence Marriott is very interested in wanting us to sympathize with the monster in this case. So then in the 20th century, we see kind of an explosion of vampire literature, and it changed in a lot of ways. And maybe a vampire became uh, a metaphor for a lot of different monsters in our lives. Can you address some of that literature? Yeah, so um, actually still on the on the topic of psychic vampires, um, uh, psychic vampires in general are pretty understudied. I feel like it's because, you know, you're going within, you're having to peel away scholarship onion where it's like first vampire studies isn't exactly that popular. And then within vampire studies, psychic vampires under that 
are less popular. Um, but in a lot of the full-length monographs we have that kind of detail vampire history, the psychic vampire, if it's mentioned, usually actually is mentioned as originating in the 20th century, which as we found now isn't true. Um, but a lot of times, uh, George B. Vrex, which I'm sure again, I pronounced horribly, but uh, I believe it's 1920, his novel House of the Vampire is often cited as being the first psychic vampire, or at least the first, first proper psychic vampire novel and in my opinion it kind of reads as a retelling of the picture of dorian gray because it's all about supposedly someone who sacrifices their creative energy and their kind of life force and their life energy to be a better artist to this kind of psychic vampire figure so it's at least dealing with some very similar themes to picture of dorian gray um but we'd have a lot of these kind of I don't even know what exactly to call them. I don't know if it's, again, just because of my own bias of loving the 19th century vampire, but it seems that at least the first half of the 20th century, we get a lot of, not unoriginal, because that feels not a charitable word to ascribe to them, but it seems like we have a lot of just maybe stagnation in the vampire tradition before the 1950s, where there's a lot of vampire literature coming out, but not a lot of it feels particularly new. It almost feels as if, which might make sense given modernism is kind of all about their kind of frustrations with Victorian literature and realism and so maybe they're just trying to work through like can we make the vampire modernist I don't know is that something that we can do um but again we have also this coming up alongside the rise of science fiction as a more popular form of media so I've always at least read almost this explosion but diminishment like there's a lot being published but not a lot of it has lasted in the cultural memory and I think that may be due to the rise of pulp magazines at this time and pulp magazines getting more involved in specifically science fiction and fantasy so just in terms of popular genres and again at the end of the day popular genres are much more dedicated to what makes money and I think at that time what was making money was the rise in science fiction and so I think that kind of compared to the vampire genre that wasn't like dying out but again goes in waves where there wasn't as much coming out in the vampire genre at that time that ends up lasting as something that feels new or important or significant certainly not like literature that came out after world war ii in that latter half of the yes. 20th century for sure i agree so some of the key texts that came up as I was doing some research to prepare for a conversation today was I Am Legend by Richard Matheson, which came out in 1953, which we've seen a lot of iterations mm -hmm. of since Salem's Lot by Stephen King in 1975. Truly terrifying. <laughs> and then even Interview with the Vampire by Anne Rice in 1975, just more and more iterations of the vampire and like you said the traditional vampire and the psychic vampire and vampires being more sympathetic or more complicated than yes. just the the dracula story can you yes, speak this to is, that this is one of my favorite areas to come in as as the you know the old 19th centuryist to come in because again um a lot of you're just 
general vampire history will kind of cite this era, the post-World War II era, as being the era of the sympathetic vampire, um, a lot of times owing to Anne Rice and Interview with a Vampire, um, claiming it as kind of the seminal sympathetic vampire text, which, again, I don't want to diminish its impact, and it definitely was obviously very popular and very influential on the history of vampire fiction. However, I would disagree that it's where where the sympathetic vampire starts, um, because again, like I said, um, we've got Blood of the Vampire, which I think, in, which again is the 1897 novel that I think is explicitly sympathetic, and even going further back to Varney the Vampire, which is that Penny Dreadful I mentioned, which started up in the 1840s and ran until 1854, and that was actually the first vampire text that we know of that uh, was written in the first person, so it was written from the point of view of Varney, where he would say, I did this, I did that, and he is also very sympathetic, maybe not as well-crafted of a sympathy since again it was the penny dreadfuls which we still argue about who even wrote them sometimes he's in one country sometimes he's in another it's very the quality is not the greatest but we do have the point of view of varney and we do have him being very regretful for his actions he feels very guilty um and again by the end spoiler spoiler alert uh varney actually does die by suicide because of his guilt for all of all of the things that he has wrought in the past, you know, 15 years. So we do have the sympathetic vampire before then. It just, for a variety of reasons, wasn't as well known. However, I do think that specifically the post-World War II sympathetic vampire is its own breed of sympathetic vampire, because I think this is where we start to see the first almost... I feel like I should have a better scholarly word to call it other than like the sexy vampire. You know, I feel like this is, <laughs> I feel like this is where we get the vampire that we're not only sympathetic towards, but we kind of want to be in a relationship with. We kind of want to talk to. We're not just sympathetic towards, we kind of, we want to invite them in. You know, we want to have this relationship with them that goes beyond pity or sympathy. And we kind of, see them as romantic beings in and of itself that goes beyond just the kind of Victorian fantasy of the rich aristocratic vampire, but especially with Interview with a Vampire, where we see that sexuality a little bit more explicit explicitly, instead of having to do the, you know, sexuality by omission Victorian thing, which we've kind of been used to in the tradition, we see it just explicitly there. And, um, you know, it it wasn't on your list because it probably doesn't come up in the most, you know, best, best vampire books of the, you know, 20th century. But we do, interestingly, in the 60s and 70s, also get a huge explosion in um, lesbian softcore porn that is specifically vampires. And like, when I say explosion, I mean, it is like, that was the biggest subgenre of that. And there are these exploitation films that, again, aren't explicitly pornographic but they are very pornographic um and they are explicitly dealing with these feminine seductresses that are vampiric often they live in this secluded tropical island that they're inviting people to inviting their victims to and there's this either very depending on the region in which it was filmed either just explicit nudity or a lot of innuendo and so we've also got that going on in the undercurrent of the popular culture of the time too which i think kind of just 
goes with that whole idea of like, oh, we're we're getting sexy with our vampires now, regardless of if you're consuming that media or not, which I just find very interesting. And a lot of there's a lot of different historical and cultural scholars that have different theories as to why just in terms of different American shifting cultural landscapes and things like that. Um, but I do think that Salem, Salem's Lot and Interview with a Vampire are kind of the two texts that a lot of people point to during that time to kind of show, okay, something has shifted. Not necessarily saying we've never seen it before, but this kind of seems to be the predominant mode going forward, where we expect to have some sort of sympathy for the vampire. It's very rare that past this point, we have a vampire that we absolutely hate without any sort of sympathy, without any sort of understanding of why they're doing this, where they're coming from, what their psychology is. It's very rare that we don't get any of that moving forward. Right. Well, I fully support you using the word sexy because my (laughs) next question for you is going to be, when did vampires get sexy? When did we start lusting after and falling in love with vampires and it is interesting that again Salem's Lot by Stephen King and Interview with the Vampire by Anne Rice came out in the same year right. a male and a female author very much hearkening back to Francis Marriott and yeah. um yeah and Bram Stoker so that is an interesting echo in history um but It's so fascinating to hear that that was seen across different types of media at the same, at the same time period. And there is certainly no modern vampire fiction without that change, right? Because I feel like since 2000, since Twilight, (laughs) it is mostly the lusting after vampire tradition that has taken root in, in modern vampire fiction. Um, so I'm curious to hear some of the theories about why that switch happened specifically in the United States and what leads to today the fiction that we all kind of know and love. Right. So I think that's that's such an interesting question. And that's honestly where I kind of began my interest within vampire studies back in undergrad, trying to figure out do I want to go to grad school? What do I want to do it for? I started with just the vampire and I started just with, you know, I have been obsessed with the vampire for as long as I can remember. And I liked 19th century, but that wasn't really on my radar. It was mostly, let's just start with the vampire and start from there because I was unabashedly, unashamedly, you know, that teenage girl that was just in love with Twilight, obsessed with it in every way possible, and then just consumed any vampire media that I could. I read all of the paranormal romances that involve vampires. I truly, like, I would look and see, like, okay, if there's not a vampire in it, I don't want it. So from very early on, I had that obsession. And so now I've gotten to reflect on that and kind of return to those pieces and look at them from now the 26-year-old view of me and say, like, okay, I still enjoy them just as much, but what was that? Why Why was that there? Why am I certainly not alone in this phenomena? And again, I don't know the exact answer. None of us do. Um, however, I do think there's been a really interesting resurgence in in that question um, because I think with Twilight and you know some of the big names, Twilight being books and movies and Vampire Diaries, the long running TV show, and even before that, Buffy and the '90s, which I do have have my shirt on for, Yay. and you know <laughs> even the X Files had more than one vampire episode. 
So, you know, there were all of these serialized forms of vampire media, which is kind of where I find the most interest in, because even with the movies, um, many of the movies were serialized or they were based on book series. And I think that part of it just is lies in the fact that inherently with serialized storytelling, you become attached to the characters in a very different way, just because if you are watching all of it or reading all of it, experiencing all of it, you are with them for such a longer period of time that it almost feels inevitable that there's going to be some sort of bond there. So then I think that combined with the demographic of young women, which is what primarily these were marketed towards, um, the TV shows, the books, again, most of them were explicitly romances with the vampire as usually the male, as the male lead. And I think combined with that, we get this interesting stew of cultural opinions where at the time, you know, a stew. <laughs> yes, huge. And, you know, owing to my name of Stuart, you know, it's a huge, a stew of cultural opinions where at the time they're super popular. And again, this follows the trend of almost any massive popular success. We see this almost exact same thing that happened with the Beatles where at the time, extremely popular, and we know that young women are the dedicated fan base, that are the intended demographic for this piece of popular fiction. That is who it's being written for. And at the time, it's huge. People are just consuming it. It's making the money, whatever. Then soon afterwards, a couple years after that dies down, we get the backlash, where then we get people famously hating on it where now it's totally uncool to like twilight to like the vampire diaries to have your you know edward cullen shirts you get the phrase of well that's even a better romance than twilight you know it's just it is now the cool thing to hate it and you know then you become ashamed or at least i definitely was like oh yeah i i was a twilight fan like i'm, I'm a reformed fan now i'm not anymore mm -hmm. and we you start learning about the different like anti-feminist takes on Twilight where a lot of work has been done and a lot of conversation has been done to show that most of these romantic pairings with the vampires often lead into either outright abusive dynamics um abusive domestic violence dynamics whether that's physical emotional manipulation just various power dynamics um a lot of the times if it's an immortal vampire you have like a 400 year old man courting this 13 year old right like that doesn't it's troubling right there's a lot of things that then start to come out that are criticized about these pieces on the kind of level of the values that are being instilled in the audience on one hand which is very important and very relevant and definitely I think is needed to be brought up and as a part of why I study popular culture is because a lot of these things get overlooked simply because oh it's just popular culture like it's it's just that there's of course we should we don't have to look at it then we do look at it and we see these things going on but then perhaps even more troubling we get the backlash that is very just misogynist filled filled with misogyny and fueled not in part because there are people looking at it and saying oh this is maybe perpetuating harmful dynamics but looking at it and saying well young women like it so therefore it must be cringe or embarrassing or not good inherently because things that young women like are not going to be good and so then that kind of goes off into those separate branching paths of criticism that then leads to where i would say we're at, we're at now with that kind of cycle where we have a lot of the people who criticized it, rightfully so, 
for having these dynamics or just criticizing the the fact of having a romantic monster at all and now there's a kind of a reappraisal of that criticism and almost a reclaiming of that criticism with the context of being an adult reader looking back at it which again there's this is still a conversation that's very much ongoing and different people have different reads on it but now there are a lot of people especially my age that are coming back to twilight and coming back to it saying okay i acknowledge the harmful things that are going on i acknowledge that i wouldn't actually want to be in a relationship with edward cullen that like if i were bella i would not act like this but enjoying it nonetheless and enjoying it in spite of that and we've now seen not to get too off into the weeds but we've now seen a really interesting boom specifically in the romance genre of commercial publishing of monster romances that lean into the harmful tropes knowingly but don't hide them whereas with a lot of, and again, I keep bringing up Twilight because it's the one that was the most popular and the most written about both on a pop culture scale and an academic scale, where a lot of the issues that came with it was, okay, we're seeing these things, but they're not addressed in the text. Whereas now we're seeing these monster romances, which vampires are still absolutely dominating. Uh, vampire romances are very much still alive and well today, where there will be specific either content warnings or an author's note that addresses the fact that you know, we've got this huge age difference, or we've got a power dynamic, or there may be scenes of manipulation or things like that, but it's addressed in the text and seen as a form of escapism and a form of fantasy for adult women who may be indulged in these vampire texts as a teenager without the context. And I think that's been a really interesting shift that I've identified in terms of the trends of how we're seeing vampires and who is consuming the text and depending on who consumes it what criticisms it gets because interview with the vampire also got these criticisms it also got these same criticisms of romanticizing blah 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 the different types of sexuality in it and if it was healthy or not um but i will just say maybe i just haven't seen it but i have not seen any of those criticisms in Salem's Lot or in a lot of the male authored texts of this time that were marketed towards a male audience even if you could very much read those fantasies there as well it seems like the inherent issue is when there is that kind of romance aspect introduced which coincidentally maybe not so coincidentally is a predominantly female written and female consumed and female marketed towards genre Ooh. That's interesting to think about, isn't it? That is it possible that there is always this feature of control over how women engage in romantic behavior that we see in literature and in our behaviors um, today? I probably don't want to take that any further, but that is really interesting right. um, to consider and to think about. I am older than you, audience, I am older, <laughs> and I was, a I kind of missed the window on Twilight, reading Twilight as a young girl, and I, I did read it um, when I was a young mom instead, and it was, it's such a compelling story, really sucked me in, but at the same time, I was able to consider the troubling aspects of the story. It is interesting to see that 
we, maybe not just as women, but as people, we are drawn to these um, broken characters, these monsters, these um, representations of darkness. And I'm not sure what that tells us about ourselves as humans and the human experience. Is it that we always are sympathetic and want to fix and want to heal the things that are broken? Or we want good to conquer evil and we want to save the monster and help the monster be good? Or are we just drawn to things that are not good for us, that are not healthy? Maybe all of those things in one, but I really appreciate you bringing up the just kind of inherent misogyny in the way that this kind of literature has been criticized in the past. Mm -hmm. It's interesting also that you took something that you were passionate about and have now turned it into the basis of your PhD and your ongoing scholarship moving forward. That's actually really inspiring to me that you can fall in love with something and learn all about it and become an expert and share that, um, share your thinking and your feelings with with the whole world about something that you really fell in love with when you were younger. Good for you, Rachel. Thank cool. you. Thank you. No, it really is the, it really is the dream. I mean, if I like went back to 12 year old Rachel, checking out these like random books from the library, just devouring them in a day and somehow telling her you're going to make money to just sit and like, think about it and talk about it to people. I would not, I would not believe that. But I do, I do want to quickly say to your point about wanting to, you know, fix like the whole, I can fix him, a broken scenario. And that goes all the way back to, again, Byron, where we specifically have the figure of um, what's called the Byronic vampire, um, which very much is what Edward Cullen is, is what Damon and Stefan Salvatore from the Vampire Diaries are, it's what Angel is from Buffy, where we have the dark and brooding uh, character who is a vampire. There's also just in general, the Byronic character, the Byronic hero, um, but specifically we have the Byronic vampire that like the name suggests, is based off of Lord Byron. And again, that starts all the way back with the original text of the vampire. So we've had this figure, we've wanted to fix him for so long. For hundreds of years. Right. And it it seems like too often that figure hates themselves for yes. being the monster yes. and and is seeking redemption, seeking um that change as well. And so it's not just on the female side, it's also the male side of rejecting the monster within. Um, so of course we would be remiss if we did not delve into vampires being depicted in film and television too. That's such an important part of the humanities and how we engage with these stories and in, in modern storytelling. Um, I have been asking around friends, colleagues, you know, what are your favorite vampire films and TV shows? And I, I've i detected a little snobbery around Nosferatu, mm -hmm. the 1922 silent film, yes. that it, it, there are some like diehard lovers of this film who say it is the best hands down ever portrayal of, of vampires. What would you say, Rachel? So I, I will 
I will admit I am a huge German expressionist film fan. It is my favorite area within film history and film scholarship. So I, which Nosferatu is a very important figure within German expressionist film. So I am also one of those huge fans, but I'm also willing to go against the huge fans and, you know, think about it other ways. But I will say that um, I actually, I mean, I totally agree. It's fantastic film. It's a hallmark film in both German Expressionism and just in vampire history. A lot of things that we associate with the vampire originated in this in this film. Um, I think the one that surprises most people is the kind of rule of vampires burning in the sun and dying in the sun originated within this Nosferatu film that was not in anything before 1922. So you're not going to find that in any of the like original 19th century texts um, that fully just came from here. Um, but I will say that I think the most interesting part of Nosferatu maybe is actually the story behind it, given that it now is such an important film, not just for vampire scholars, but for film scholars, for just humanity scholars, for, it's, it, you know, it's one of the most important films, period. And we almost lost it completely because, uh, it, you know, it's called Nosferatu. It's not called Dracula, but I think most people know that it is supposed to be the, a film adaptation of Dracula. And the Stoker estate was not happy with its production and with its production in spite of the Stoker estate and not crediting and not being an official accredited adaptation. So there was a big legal battle and most of the records, most of the tapes of Nosferatu got burned and were not refound until much, much later and were not recovered. And it was only then that we could piece it together. And even then there's still debates over if we actually have the full film or not. So because of Dracula, you know, our, our beloved text, we almost didn't get the now most beloved filmic version of the vampire that's hilarious that's an, that's irony for sure right? and it has definitely had a resurgence since like you said since it was rediscovered and mm -hmm. re-shown in movie theaters it's now considered just an absolute gem in film history and as you, as you said, really pioneered a lot of ideas that we take for granted now about in vampires. I would say, looking back at vampires in film and TV, one of my all-time favorites, we were just talking about this before we hit record, is what we do in the shadows, this really comedic take on vampires. Why, why do we love this portrayal so much? I, I will also say that I think if I absolutely had to choose, it's definitely somewhere in like my top five or top three. I genuinely think it is the perfect, perfect balance of being such a good show entertainment wise on it's, you know, trying to be a comedy and it is absolutely hilarious. And I also think it is incredibly, incredibly smart. I mean, it is one of those shows where you can watch it even if you don't know anything about vampires or if you only know you know, the very basics, you've maybe heard of Dracula and that's literally it, you'll still have a good time with it. But I can't help but just admire it, both the movie and the TV show. I absolutely love both. They are both so learned and it is very clear that the producers, the show runners, the writers know their vampire history and know their vampire media from the most kind of cursory, like, okay, maybe they've read the greatest hits to some of the little easter eggs whether it's by explicit mention or just the types of characters that they have and the things that they mention I watch it sometimes and I'm like how do they know 
Like they, like it is truly astonishing how smart the show is, not just on the level of being entertaining, which it absolutely is too, but the ways in which it really does knowingly interact with the vampire canon, where there's some of these texts that we study where we kind of have to make conjectures or just say, okay, well, it's interacting with this trope, whether we know that that was intentional or not, we can't say, but for what we do in the shadows, it is based upon the fact that it knows it is interacting with this culture. The comedy and the humor from the show comes with the fact of we know we're commenting on this vampiric trope or this vampiric type. I mean, from both the movie and the TV show, the characters themselves are explicitly based on different subtypes of the vampire. And it is just so genius in that way. And both from a viewer's perspective, an academic perspective, and a teaching perspective. It is definitely one of my favorite things to teach in any vampire studies class because the students just get so excited being like, oh my god, I that's a reference to a thing we read. And like, they get it. And it is so exciting. And I truly like, could not speak enough good things on it. And I think they also make explicit a lot of the things that we've taken for granted that weren't explicit. I think, again, a lot of things with sexuality where we've just kind of, it's almost the joke now that we all, oh, we just, we know vampires are all gay. Like, that's just like the joke of you can't, well, you can't have a vampire without having to be a gay vampire. And even though that wasn't explicitly written in a lot of these texts, what we do in the shadows really leans on that and makes it part of the comedy, which is just so genius of them. They aren't trying to reinvent the wheel and try and think that they're better than what vampire media can before but rather they're celebrating it and critiquing it with such joy to show the absurdity of it because it is a monster and this is technically a creature of the horror genre but like we talked about a little bit too I'm not someone who studies horror because I want to be scared I'm that's not kind of what I'm there for and so I think they're clued into that and they're clued into the fact that yes vampires are technically horror but they are ridiculous like if this was actually real it would be not scary, but just ridiculous. And we're going to show that. And I just think it's so brilliant. Yeah. And I should say for our listeners that the first What We Do in the Shadows was a film in 2014, directed by our favorite Kiwis, Taika Waititi and Jemaine Clement. And now there is a television show as well that is on FX. FX and is kind of a mockumentary style show. So they continue with the absurdity of the um, real life of vampires living today. Another huge pop culture phenomenon was Buffy the Vampire Slayer. The film first came out in 1992 and features basically a um, homecoming queen who ends up having to save everyone by by slaying vampires and then famously it became a really popular television show and just really a pop culture phenomenon everybody knows Buffy everybody loves Buffy what is it about this portrayal that was so exciting to audiences so I think with Buffy particularly it's just the fact that the basic setup of the show is that a blonde homecoming queen is the monster slayer. I mean, it, they're taking the fact of, they're taking the 
clear-cut portrait of who is usually the victim in vampire media. Um, I mean, if again, if we go back to Dracula and we have Lucy, who is um, this character, who is this blonde, pretty young woman, and she kind of becomes the quintessential vampire victim throughout media history. And Buffy takes on the physical appearance of that vampire victim. However, in the actual storytelling, she is the one who's slaying the vampires. And I think it very much rings true in the Xena the Warrior Princess uh, era way of feminism for the time of taking these more masculine roles and or taking the feminine roles within genre that these characters would have and flipping them on their head, um, which I think can be both reductive in some areas and productive in others. But Buffy, I think it was particularly successful with because you both got the satisfaction from seeing Buffy kick ass and seeing her in her very stylish outfits, going through the cemeteries and just slaying whatever creature comes her way. But you also got the complicated portrayal of a high school young woman. You saw her going through by night slaying vampires and by day having an exam or dealing with her first relationship and growing friendships and just dealing with being a high school woman and dealing with her femininity while also having this whole other side to her. And I think it was the fact that the show acknowledges both of those sides that made it so long lasting so that even when we watch it today in 2023 and we can think, okay, there's been so many, you know, female action stars since then, none of, not none of them, but not a lot of them get that same complexity given to them that Buffy does. And so I think when she does end up having relationships with a vampire, it reads very differently than Bella in Twilight or Elena in The Vampire Diaries, where we're dealing with a human vampire relationship. And like we talked about earlier, some of those power dynamics that come with it, the power dynamic here is much different when the human is also the one with the agency to kill this person. Absolutely. And we see a similar flip in the Underworld film mm -hmm. series. Mm -hmm. The first came out in 2003, starring Kate Beckinsale as a vampire who is a warrior in a war between werewolves who are called lichens and vampires. And she is the rescuer and savior of a male human who has by for no reason we can identify become involved in this in this war and so she is the vampire who's kicking butt and mm -hmm. saving a male human so the that power dynamic changes as well and this was a hugely popular series and has kind of become a cult classic since yeah and i will also recommend uh, a book that came out I, it just recently got republished because the author found a new publisher, but I think it was originally published in 2014-ish, um, but it's called Certain Dark Things by Silvia Moreno-Garcia, and it also follows that similar setup where it is there is a romantic relationship at the center of the story between a human and a vampire, but the vampire is a woman, is this female vampire that obviously has more power. Um, the male love interest is just kind of for better, for better or worse, a nerd. He's just kind of excited about vampires and thinks they're cool and collects comics and she is like the actual vampire. So we have that dynamic continuing throughout the history of kind of turning that on its head and seeing how that power dynamic changes the relationship. 
It's interesting to, to look at film portrayals of the classics that we talked about. Francis Ford Coppola's 1992 film called Bram Stoker's Dracula is generally acknowledged to be the best mm -hmm. um, portrayal of his Dracula. And then Interview with the Vampire and Rice's classic came out in the 90s starring Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise, who were just newly famous at that time. Do you have any favorites of the classics that we've discussed that were portrayed in film or television? Ooh. I'm the worst. I the worst thing is that I've seen so many of them that I like. I'm like, okay, you want my favorite twenty? That would work. Um, <laughs> but I do think, I do think if I if I really had to choose, and I think this just again goes with the nature of when you're with a serialized story, you get so much more attached. I don't think I have a favorite classic film, but I do think. I do think, given the nature of my shirt, I think Buffy has to be my favorite. I guess I'd say it's my favorite pre-me watching it as it was airing vampire media. Yeah. Like, thing that yeah. I watched later that I didn't necessarily grow up watching and loving. I do think Buffy just has that special lasting power for me. And again, I love Nosferatu, and I will have to join the choruses on that one and saying that if I, like, had to choose a film that would be like the one I think that would be my one but I also I'm a big fan of uh Werner Herzog's uh re-adaptation of Nosferatu I think I like that more than most people because I'm someone who wants to see adaptations go rogue so I like it because it was different from the original and I think it's a really really great pairing to the original Nosferatu I feel that I have to give a shout out to my colleagues here at the Idaho Humanities Council who became obsessed with a portrayal of vampires on Netflix called Midnight Mass, which is a miniseries that came out in 2021. I haven't seen it, so I'm not passing any judgment, but it's very popular here at the I with the staff at the IHC. And in this portrayal of vampires, um, the vampire is actually seen as an angel from God and a priest is trying to bless his parishioners with um, access to this angel from God. And so there's some really interesting themes here of marrying religion and monsters together. So maybe you and I can add that to our list to see, but I promised I would sneak in. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah no I, it's definitely been very high on my to watch list that I have yet to get to yeah it was created and directed by Mike Flanagan who um people know from his slasher film Hush he he's um really doing some cool things with monsters on film and I am so a huge we'll... fan of him so I okay good. I, I'm I'm already going in thinking it'll be great it'll be great Okay, so obviously this weekend, Rachel and I will be catching up on Midnight Mass and we will never sleep again. It will be <laughs> fine. Um, we kind of want to wrap things up today with talking about the cool, the coolness factor of vampires. Um, Rachel, you were saying when you were, you know, a tween, early teen, vampires were so cool, right? True Blood, The Vampire Diaries. Um, Buffy and Angel and all of those things were so popular in um, in contemporary media. 
where are what is the state of affairs for vampires and monsters more broadly today? Yeah, so I think we are in a monster renaissance. Um, I am personally excited about it. I'm living my best life with it. Um, but <laughs> we are getting, I mean, for one, we're getting another readaptation where we have the interview with a vampire now television show that has gotten very rave reviews, both critically and just popularity wise, um, which I think has really set off another new wave of vampire media. We've got the most recent um, film. I think it's, I can't remember I, if they called it the Demeter, Voyage of the Demeter, but we have a new film mm -hmm. that recently came out that's based off of one singular chapter in Dracula. Um, we've also got this resurgence, as I was kind of speaking about earlier, of older vampire texts where we have a lot of people either rediscovering things that they liked in their teens about vampires such as twilight or the vampire diaries i think some of that may have to do with again streaming culture where a lot of people are returning to these things that they maybe haven't had the chance to watch since then um and with social media platforms like tiktok where we're now getting this new generation of fans where a lot of people are maybe watching the vampire diaries for the first time but they're watching it with other people of the same age who are also watching it for the first time so they're kind of reviving the fandom in that way which has been really interesting as being kind of the intermediary where i did watch it when it was airing but i also am joining in it on the rewatch um so that's been really cool. And then with even in literature, specifically within popular literature, because I'm really interested in following popular genre trends, um, within the past three years, I would say, horror in general um, only just then became an actual marketable genre in terms of us seeing actual sub imprints specifically dedicated to horror and not just being kind of shoved into sci-fi fantasy and then within that within the past I would say year to year and a half we've then had a resurgence of the vampire in general within literature a lot of new vampire literature has been being published but again because everything is a cycle for better or worse um we're seeing a resurgence in young adult vampire literature again with these romances of vampires and a lot of them I haven't personally read um that are still coming out but I've kind of been keeping track of them and just seeing them pop up which has been really interesting to see like okay is this the second the second generation then of the of the vampire teens well as the official representative of soccer moms in this <laughs> discussion I have to say for myself I'm always interested in whatever gets kids to fall in love with reading mm -hmm. or whatever keeps teenagers reading, right? Um, that's such an important part of life is to keep learning and keep exposing yourself to new ideas that you are not familiar with. So whatever it is that floats your boat and gets you reading, I'm a fan of it. And I'm such a fan of yours, Rachel, the Vampire Scholar. It's oh, so great to you. talk to you today. You've given us so many um, ideas for things to watch and read and think about um, during the spooky season this year, and maybe even just to consider um, monsters in a new light and vampires differently and the things that we love reading that maybe felt like a guilty pleasure when we were young, that that's still such a part of how we connect with this human experience, stories of being human is reckoning with those monsters, right? Yes, absolutely. Awesome. Well, thank you for your time today. It's been a pleasure to talk to you.
Thank you so much for having me. It's been great.